0: People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people.
1: Welcome to this edition of V-Radio. Uh, just got back from a really good vacation, um, although unfortunately I did contract a cold. <laughs> um, I'm going to be reading from Mike Revelle's book again today since we previously had had uh, technical issues when I was reading the book for the blog talk listeners. I would like to read it again and also be able to archive it so that people can listen to the book, Citizen Power, um, on their own time. Um, fortunately enough, you know, as I said, Mike Gravel was gracious enough to give me permission to read the book on the air anytime I want. And um, I hope that uh, all of you will tune in for this and um, learn a bit about Senator Gravel's ideas about direct democracy. I'd like to point out that um, regardless of whether or not you want to support Senator Gravel or not, as president, the concept of direct democracy holds weight and value on its own. And that all of the libertarian candidates essentially have accepted this idea. Um, Some of them feel that it would be better if it was some kind of uh, ability to repeal laws and not to create them, but I'm not really
2: that afraid of laws. So I'll be back after these messages. Libertarian candidate for president, Christine Smith.
3: It's time for a people's America, an America of peace and individual liberty.
2: Libertarianforpresident.com
3: I am the only true peace candidate. My first act as president will be to immediately withdraw all U.S. troops from Iraq, regardless of the consequences. I will end American imperialism. I will end U.S. government meddling in the affairs and conflicts of foreign nations.
2: LibertarianforPresident.com
3: I will restore all your rights because I believe in the literal interpretation of the Bill of Rights. Your natural rights and civil liberties are my priority. Your personal and economic freedom is my priority.
2: Learn more about Christine Smith and her campaign to restore the Republic because it is time for a people's America. Visit libertarianforpresident.com.
3: I am Christine Smith, Libertarian candidate for president, and I approve this message. It was paid for by Christine Smith for president.
4: Fairness, justice, and freedom are not just words, these are
5: perspectives. This is Jacob. And this is Neil. Tune in to B radio Monday through Friday, 1 p.m. to 3 p.m., Eastern Standard Time, revolutionbroadcasting.com.
4: We you the best in news commentary on the to fight for freedom. We
5: don't blow up buildings to make our fight, but we will blow up
4: People should
0: not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people.
6: the candidate voted to pass a military commission to reauthorize
0: the country, both which have embraced the freedoms
6: we cherish. It is for this very reason we are losing our freedoms. I'm Brian Green, Independent Candidate for Congress and I approve this message. In Congress I fight to protect the Constitution and to ensure limited constitutional government. Visit Brian Green for Freedom Factor at
7: www.briangreenua.com
8: Still playing around with the
7: old media? The works are you don't even know.
8: Are CNN and Fox any better alive than they are on TV?
4: You're
7: right.
8: So I could have told
7: you that. I'm so. I can't compete with you physically, and you're no match for my brand. In this corner, the old
8: media. It's a piece of crap
7: that doesn't work.
8: And in this corner, the world champion, Revolution Broadcasting! <laughs> Don't forget to visit www.revolutionbroadcasting.com for the very best in news and commentary on the issues of the fight for freedom. Unfortunately, the free press ain't free. So if you like what you're hearing here at revolutionbroadcasting.com, don't forget to
0: throw us a little
6: shit Are you ready to have your voice be heard? Do you want to be around thousands of liberty-minded individuals? What are you doing July 12, 2008? Ron Paul and the rest of the movement will be in Washington, D.C. to rally for peace, prosperity, and to restore the Constitution. Join us July 12, 2008 in Washington, D.C. RevolutionMarch.com wants to organize the largest peaceful march and rally in history. And Dr. Paul is our keynote speaker. For all the updated information, go to RevolutionMarch.com. Join us in making this the loudest voice of... ...the right ...and make it a great educational vacation. And join Dr. Paul and the rest of the freedom movement in our nation's capital.
0: Brothers and sisters, time to
6: get together. Senator Gravel's update to his classic biting commentary on today's society, citizen power, is a sobering assessment of today's woes. More troubling is the fact that little has changed since Gravel first put pen to paper 36 years ago. In fact, according to Gravel, in most cases the problems have only gotten worse. Gravel writes, most Americans today are frustrated and confused. They are told by everyone that they are the richest people in the world, and the world's freest nation. Yet they see poverty in the midst of plenty, and continued erosion of their civil liberties. People are tired of liberal promises and conservative game plans which offer the rhetoric of hope and in reality merely protect and perpetuate the status quo. Now the people want to be in power. Support Senator Gravel in his efforts not only to clean up Washington but to give you the power to build a better nation. Get your copy of Citizen Power now at citizen-power.com Dot U.S. Tune in to the North Virginia Police News Monday through Friday, 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern. Expecting personal liberty, 1776. Visit our website at Radio.
1: All right, and we're back here on B radio RevolutionBroadcasting.com, and BlogTalkRadio.com. I'm uh, sorry about all those annoying Windows noises. Uh, my computer is kind of fritzing out a little bit, but uh, everything should be fine now. Um, anyway... <coughs> As promised, today I will be working with the uh, reading from the book Citizen Power, written by Senator Mike Gravel, um, with his permission, and um, as previously, uh, Senator Mike Gravel had uh, suggested that, um oh great, I've got an echo on blog talk, Um, make sure that, (laughs) one moment, Okay. Anyway, um, for those of you who are listening on Blog Talk, if you're getting an echo and you can't hear the show, then by all means uh, come to revolutionbroadcasting.com and listen. Oh, yeah, it looks like the echo finally went away. Good. Um, As I was saying, um, Senator Gravel recommends that you read Chapter 2 of the book and then Chapter 12 of the book. Um, So I'm going to be reading (coughs) first from... Chapter 12, oddly enough, because it talks about the history of the issue, and then I will be reading from Chapter 2. So, Chapter 12 talks about the history of democracy and how it was kind of robbed from us here in the United States. So, turning the pages now. He was nice enough to send me an autographed copy getting a lot of use lately. All right. Who stole the American dream? The present state of things is the consequence of the past, and it is natural to inquire as to the sources of the good we enjoy or the evils we suffer. Samuel Johnson. The title of this chapter is the same as it was 37 years ago. I thought of freedom and the personal and civil liberty as uniquely American. I think most of us believe this without realizing that such national hubris devalues the concept. The dream of freedom, respect for individual sovereignty, is not uniquely American. It began with civilization. The struggle to prevent enslavement or subjugation in any relationship is universal in all people. The title of this chapter suggests that some force has been denying us our dream while, at the same time, bombarding us with jingoistic rhetoric that the American dream is the pinnacle of human achievement. My present analysis is somewhat better informed by the intervening years from the beginning of my Senate career when the book was first published in 1972 to the present. My view of the corporation, an institution lacking memory and morality, is not less harsh, however. My view of government, a tool for cooperative action, has become harsher still. All of our efforts in improving public policy are rooted in the structure of representative government, Unfortunately, we continue to believe that electing the right people to public office will bring about beneficial change, so we repeat over and over again something that has been proven repeatedly not to work. I do not diminish the vital need to elect people of integrity to public office. The point I make is that such elections are not nearly enough to overcome the shortcomings of representative government. All people's dream of freedom and happiness, particularly those who have experienced the inequities and repressions of autocratic governments, We Americans are blessed with the opportunity to realize our dream of freedom at the confluence of the Scottish, English, and French Ages of Enlightenment in the 18th century, when ancient Greek concepts of democracy experienced a rebirth. (coughs) Nevertheless, we had to struggle for our freedom with blood and sacrifice in a revolutionary war. It wasn't until 1787 that the structure of our government took permanent shape, the design of which became a beacon that would guide the peoples of the world toward a system of representative government. When the constitutional framers met in Philadelphia, their options in designing our new government were unduly influenced by the fact that the 13 Confederate states, all independently sovereign, were in the process of falling apart internally and as a confederation. The Convention delegates were the wealthy elites of those states. Any loss of civic cohesion would directly affect their personal property. Their initial preference for the structure of a new government derived from the successful, from successful colonial experience with the town meeting system of governance should have produced an amalgam of representative and direct citizen involvement in government. Unfortunately, the pall of slavery gripped the Convention's proceedings, holding hostage any possible truly democratic success. Compounding the tragedy the Framers were about to initiate was the fact that probably the best opportunity to rid the nation of the scourge of slavery was the period from the secession of the Revolutionary War hostilities in 1781 to the beginning of the Philadelphia Convention in May 1787, Free free blacks and slaves had fought in the Revolutionary War in numbers that exceeded their demographic distribution, and King Cotton had yet to take command of the Deep South with Eli Whitney's gin. Blacks had earned their piece of the dream. I believe the point at which the American dream of freedom was eclipsed was when the delegates to the convention failed to keep faith with the principles of the Declaration of Independence articulated 11 years earlier. That declaration was the dream, the vision, all men are created equal. Delegate John Rutledge of South Carolina, backed by the delegates of Georgia, blackmailed James Madison, the architect of the convention, and the rest of the delegates into accepting slavery as the price for their states joining the new government. The framers comprised the moral principles articulated in the Declaration of Independence and made a deal with the devil in order to unify a new nation and prevent the certain collapse of the Confederate states that threaten their personal wealth and power. The legacy of slavery plagues us to this day. Repeated generational transfers of cruel and human norms of conduct toward fellow humans, rationalized by Holy Scripture, have damaged the American psyche beyond repair. <clears throat> we are a violent people, still sustained by religious fervor, and we wonder why the American psyche was further coarsened by the national sense of manifest destiny, the idea that God wished us to exercise dominion over the land. Land represented economic freedom and a chance for upward mobility. The land of the continent was there for the taking, even though the land was already occupied by the Indians. In a cruel electoral calculus, settlers used their government's military power to legalize their continued encroachments on Indian lands. Settlers voted. Indians did not. The Indians were not enslaved, but nearly annihilated. The constitutional framers, the elites of their day, created a system of representative government that held a monopoly of legislative power, that facilitated policies that shame us to this day. Regardless of how much we praise our form of government, it cannot by any stretch of the imagination be called egalitarian or democratic. Our constitution, creating the structure of representative government, favors elites simply because it was written by elites. And, of course, they did not fail to provide for the continuity of their own power by establishing procedures whereby they could amend the Constitution with Article 5 and make laws with Article 7. Our Constitution has been extensively copied around the world. Obviously, the structure of representative government does not threaten other elites governing foreign societies. The framers wrote a document that defined the first constitutional representative government in history. Representative government has since been the norm in all democracies except Switzerland, which copied our Constitution, but added one very powerful change, which represents the next step in the evolution of democracy. The Swiss Constitution, written in 1848, added the people as lawmakers, creating a very successful governing partnership with their elected officials. This was the intended road, but not the one taken by the framers of the American Constitution. Sorry, I've got a cold. (laughs) The framers had to exclude the people from from the ratification process in order to secure the ratification of their flawed constitution. They had a daunting task. They had to avoid a vote in the Confederate Congress where the constitution would likely not have been ratified. Similarly, they had to avoid votes in the state legislators by persuading them to refer ratification to state conventions called for that purpose. The convention scenario also permitted the framers to circumvent the people, denying them a legislative role in the ratification process. In 1778, Massachusetts placed before its citizens a constitution for ratification that included slavery. The people refused to ratify it. In 1780, a constitution authored by John Adams that excluded slavery was then overwhelmingly ratified. The framers in Philadelphia were well aware of ordinary people's attitude towards slavery. so They figured out how to keep them one step removed from the ratification process. That was to have the state legislatures call for state conventions and refer the Constitution for ratification to them. The elites then controlled the conventions. This had universal appeal. It offered a way to kill the Constitution without the existing governments being held accountable. It permitted the political elites for and against the Constitution to gather and duke it out without being pestered by the real people. Even with the success of overcoming these barriers, it was literally a miracle that the Constitution was ratified at all. Fifteen votes strategically placed in the three states would have meant defeat. Would a constitution sans slavery have fared fared better? I think so. At least the framers would have had the integrity to put the ratification before the people, who, as the preamble stated, do ordain. The real impact of the people being cut out of this legislative act was to alter the entire nature and the rule of citizens in American governance to this day. All the founders and framers believed that people had every right to exercise their legislative sovereignty to make laws. They are quoted frequently, pointing out that future generations have an obligation to alter their governments and constitutions to suit their interests. They also pointed out with pride to the seminal lawmaking act of the Declaration of Independence. Nevertheless, they sacrificed the people's lawmaking right to protect the ratification of their compact with the devil, slavery. They locked into the Constitution by excluding procedures that rightly belonged in Article 7 for the people to amend the Constitution and make laws. Their fears that the people would remove slavery from the Constitution, if so empowered, were well-founded. The first lobbying act of the First Congress was an assault on slavery by Pennsylvania Quakers, led by Benjamin Franklin. It was successfully thwarted by James Madison and accepted as an understanding in Congress that the subject would never be addressed again. I knew I liked Franklin for a reason. Slavery was so effectively embedded in the Constitution that its removal, short of a civil war, was impossible. Of the five features locking slavery into the Constitution, only one, that of a slave being counted as three-fifths of a person for representative purposes in the U.S. House, have been removed by the Civil War. <clears throat> the other four highly undemocratic features of the Constitution have remained to work their mischief on us to this day, long after the demise of slavery. They are 1. The Electoral College, 2. Article 5, 3. The U.S. Senate, and 4. State Control of Federal Elections. The amending process described in Article 5 is so undemocratic that the chambers, House, and Senate of the 13 smallest states can stop any national reform, a population ratio considerably less than 10%. Little wonder why so few changes have been made to to update the Constitution to meet the needs of the 21st century since its ratification in 1788. Other than housekeeping, the only changes to the Constitution have been the expansion of the voting franchise. The property requirements were essentially removed at the state level prior to the Civil War. The expansion of the voting franchise to male blacks is the product of the Civil War Reconstruction Amendments. The way was paved for a federal amendment to include women in 1920 as a result of repeated passage of initiative and referendum laws granting women the right to vote by state governments. From my perspective, the most damaging legacy of slavery on the Constitution, other than the exclusion of the legitimate exercise of the people's legislative power, is the control of federal elections by state governments. By controlling who could get elected to federal office, president, and Congress, states asserted real power many times superior to the federal power based in the Constitution. (coughs) This issue is better understood as states' rights. It was kept in contention in the supremacy of the federal government. This treatise is too short to treat the havoc that this issue has wrought on the nation the first fundamental change in American governance since the founding took place at the turn of the last century without amending the Constitution. Starting in 1898 and up until the First World War, more than 20 states amended their constitutions to permit their citizens to initiate and enact laws and amend constitutions. The motivation for the initiative, referendum, and recall laws was the abuse of corruption of the government by the business community in the post-Civil War boom and the robber baron era. The legislative role of the people with different laws from state to state has not been consistent. Additionally, citizen lawmaking has not been independent of representative government, which has sought to use its control to continually diminish the people's legislative role. The problem of citizen participation in government applies not only to those states with initiative law, but also to all states and all levels of government. It has never been easy for people to participate in the political process except under the direction and control of political parties that hold a monopoly over the electoral process. No force in history <coughs> excuse me, is more impressive than government. There is never a guarantee that successful governance in one era will be passed down in a straight line to subsequent generations. So many factors come into the chain of human events that nothing can be guaranteed and malevolent forces are always at play. In this book, I have attempted to identify a number of important issues that face our nation today. I have the advantage of having dealt with most of them more than a generation ago. I have had to face up to disappointments as I look back at my experiences. I am disheartened to see that political and social issues have gotten worse in the past 37 years, and many of the solutions proposed today, in my opinion, will only make matters even worse. I blame the competitive, confrontational structure of the Congress and the legislative monopoly it holds at the federal level. The Constitution distributes congressional representation geographically where the economic, resource, and social special interests of each state and each district come into competitive confrontation for the limited wealth of the whole government. Add to this a committee system designed to compartmentalize the specialization and expertise of individual members who are ruled over by committee chairmen and ranking members who acquire control of legislative empires by a seniority system regardless of competence. I have yet to touch upon the real machinations of the legislative process that take place and where the ultimate control of government resides, in the political parties. They are not even referred to in the Constitution, and the Founders universally disdain them as odious factions, yet they appear to the first presidential administration of George Washington and to this day carry more clout than any power defined by the Constitution. Historically, they evolved around regional economic ideologies into a two-party monopoly, which they jealousy guard with the full force of the law and the police power of government. It is to this unsanctioned power that gravity the special interests of the nation who seek to influence the direction of public policy in a venue hidden from public view. The above description of representative government is not meant to be trejo- pejorative in any way. It's how I experience and understand the process. I do not believe those within representative government can correct it. There are only two venues for change, the government and the people. The solution is obvious. People must be brought into the governing process in the only possible role, that of lawmaker. I do not mean to imply that the people as individuals are superior in intellect to their leaders as individuals. Not at all. But the people acting as a constituency of the whole, legislating by majority rule, do not have barriers in making decisions involving the public interest. The constituent majority identifies and votes its enlightened self-interest. That is not the case with representatives in government, who have generic barriers in dealing with the public interest that, in many cases, do not coincide with their personal self interest, the financial interests of their backers, or the interests of their political party in gaining or retaining power. Will laws enacted by majority decisions of citizens be perfect? Far from it. But they will be much improved over the minority rule we now suffer. When people make mistakes, they will be more inclined to make corrections. That is not the case with representatives who are averse to admitting error for fear of having that information used against them in the next election. I conclude this manuscript with the simple observation that the answer to the problems of human governance lies with the people and not with their leaders. The design of representative government maintains citizens in civic adolescence. We want the largesse of government, but we are reluctant to pay for it. We blame our elected officials when things go wrong, when in fact, we are responsible for putting them in office. That is the definition of adolescence. By becoming lawmakers and becoming responsible for public policy, the consequences of which we will enjoy or suffer, we will facilitate our civic maturation, a human development that will benefit all facets of human life. Civic maturity is the most important result of turning to each other to exert control over our system of representative government. The American dream envisioned in the Declaration of Independence is the vision of all human beings. We have yet to realize it in America, And when we do, I predict it will race around the world like the light of the sun. Cicero defined freedom as participation in power. The goal of this book and the purpose of my life are to help people understand how they can have freedom by promoting their participation in the power of government, lawmaking. It is our birthright, if we dare to claim it. That's the conclusion of chapter 12. I'm going to take a brief break here and hopefully be able to deal with this cough that's interrupting my reading. And... um, We'll be right back here on V-Radio at RevolutionBroadcasting.com.
2: Libertarian candidate for president, Christine Smith.
3: It's time for a people's America, an America of peace and individual liberty.
2: LibertarianforPresident.com.
3: I am the only true peace candidate. My first act as president will be to immediately withdraw all U.S. troops from Iraq, regardless of the consequences. I will end American imperialism. I will end U.S. government meddling in the affairs and conflicts of foreign nations.
2: LibertarianforPresident.com
3: I will restore all your rights because I believe in the literal interpretation of the Bill of Rights. Your natural rights and civil liberties are my priority. Your personal and economic freedom is my priority.
2: Learn more about Christine Smith and her campaign to restore the republic because it is time for a people's America visit libertarianforpresident.com.
3: I am Christine Smith, Libertarian Candidate for President, and I approve this message. It was paid for by Christine Smith for President.
4: Fairness, justice, and freedom are not just words. These are perspectives. This is Jacob.
5: And this is Neil. Tune in to B radio Monday through Friday, 1 p.m. to 3 p.m., Eastern Standard Time, revolutionbroadcasting.com.
4: Bringing you the best in news and commentary yeah. on the fight for freedom.
5: We don't blow build up buildings to make our point, but we will blow your mind.
4: People should not be afraid of their governments.
5: Governments
0: should be afraid of their people. Congress for Canada voted to pass the Military Commission's
1: Act
6: to reauthorize the USA Patriot Act, both which have abridged the freedoms we cherish. It is for this very reason we are losing our freedoms. I'm Brian Green, independent candidate for Congress, and I approve this message. In Congress, i fight to protect the Constitution and to ensure limited constitutional government. Visit Brian Green, the Freedom Factor, at www.briangreeneua.com. Still playing around with the old media? The for to no. Are CNN
4: and Fox any
7: better online than they are on TV? You're right. I could have told you that. i so. I can't compete with you physically, and you're no match for my brain. In this corner, the old media. It's a piece of crap that doesn't work. And in this corner,
8: the world champion, Revolution Broadcasting. Don't forget to visit www.RevolutionBroadcasting.com for the very best in news and commentary on the issues of the vice of freedom. Unfortunately, the free press is free. So if you like what you're hearing here at RevolutionBroadcasting.com, don't forget to throw us a little chicken.
6: Are you ready to have your voice be heard? Do you want to be around thousands of liberty-minded individuals? What are you doing July 12, 2008? Ron Paul and the rest of the movement will be in Washington, D.C. to rally for peace, prosperity, and to restore the Constitution. Join us July 12, 2008 in Washington, D.C. RevolutionMarch.com wants to organize the largest peaceful march and rally in history. And Dr. Paul is our keynote speaker. For all the updated information, go to RevolutionMarch.com. Join us in making this the loudest voice of freedom in history. Bring the family and make it a great educational vacation and join Dr. Paul and the rest of the freedom movement in our nation's capital.
0: Brothers and sisters, time to get
6: together. Senator Gravel's update to his classic biting commentary on today's society, citizen power, is a sobering assessment of today's woes. More troubling is the fact that little has changed since Gravel first put pen to paper 36 years ago. In fact, according to Gravel, in most cases the problems have only gotten worse. Gravel writes, most Americans today are frustrated and confused. They are told by everyone that they are the richest people in the world and the world's freest nation. Yet they see poverty in the midst of plenty and continued erosion of their civil liberties. People are tired of liberal promises and conservative game plans which offer the rhetoric of hope but in reality, merely protect and perpetuate the status quo. Now the people want to be in power. Support Senator Gravel in his efforts not only to clean up Washington but to give you the power to build a better nation. Get your copy of Citizen Power now at Citizen-Power.com us tune in to the North Virginia Patriot Show Monday through Friday, three to five PM Eastern. Section personal liberties at seventeen seventy six. Visit our website at www.northvirginiapatriots.com.
1: And we're back here on V-Radio on revolutionbroadcasting.com. <clears throat> <laughs> still haven't, unfortunately, managed to find any cough medicine, so in addition to me reading this book to you for free, you're going to have to put up with me coughing from time to time. But uh, in any case, um, I'm going to be reading now from Chapter 2, which is the other chapter that Senator Gravel strongly advises that you read from first. <clears throat> National Initiative for Democracy. More than half of American citizens have been making laws by initiative at the state and local levels of government for the last hundred years. A close examination of the people's legislative record in the 24 states and numerous local communities shows they have legislated responsibly and many times more so than their elected legislators, particularly on fiscal matters, and this was done without the deliberative legislative procedures that exist in all legislative bodies. Civil service, old-age assistance, which is a precursor to Social Security, campaign finance reform, term limits, and women's right to vote are a few examples of progressive legislation initiated by the people. These state initiative laws were enacted in the late 19th and early 20th centuries by populists and progressives, permitting voters to make laws at the state and local levels of government. Unfortunately, those reformers failed to enact deliberative legislative procedures or create an administrative agency to keep the people's legislative activities independent from the officialdom of representative government. <clears throat> As a result, state and local officials, jealous of their power, are able to thwart the people's legislative process and deny them the full and unfettered use of the initiative laws. The representative system of government, structurally maintained citizens and civic adolescence, proof of this exists in the passive acceptance of, by the people of the ridiculous actions of their elected legislators and their administrative officials, I hear that. These government leaders decide to go to war and then refuse to raise taxes to pay for the war. Worse still, they cut taxes, passing the financial burden on to our chief grandchildren. I could cite further proof with respect to education, social security, health care, taxation, the war on drugs, trade, energy, and environmental policies. It's embarrassing to then see politicians promoting this behavior with a straight face. When people give their political power away on election day... They then hold their representatives responsible for public policy decisions even though they, the voters, are responsible for electing those representatives. Ultimately, responsibility always rests with the people. The present structure of our representative government denies the people the opportunity to take the responsibility for public policy decisions and their consequences, thereby limiting their ability to mature civically. Consider the family structure. Parenting teaches us that we raise our children to adulthood by paying out our responsibility to them over time, teaching them to face life and become responsible for their own actions. The structural flaws of representative government are not self-correcting. Thomas Jefferson described the problem in a letter to Edward Carrington in 1787. If once the people become inattentive to the public affairs, you and I and Congress and assemblies, judges and governors, shall all become wolves. It seems to be the law of our general nature, in spite of individual exceptions. Wow, that's a really good point, and Thomas Jefferson was certainly correct. The watershed period at the turn of the 20th century, enacting initiative laws primarily in western states, was a reaction to the extreme corruption of our elected officials by business and corporate interests, capitalism. This era of citizen empowerment ended with the First World War, War restrictions under the Wilson administration enabled corporate elites to regain control of the polity and to stem the tide of citizen empowerment. I expand upon this subject in Chapter 12, which we've already read. Our elected representatives are human beings. It is in their nature to wield the people's political power to protect and expand their own self-interest, that of their financial and political backers who help them to secure and maintain their offices, and that of the political party to which they belong and in which they share power. Human nature and the natural corrupting influence of power are hardly correctable by those who profit from it. The people, empowered as lawmakers, are the only possible corrective force. For democracy to work, the people not only must be informed, but must also be empowered to act upon that information. Raising people's expectations that they can influence government and their representatives to deal with the public interest induces apathy when those expectations prove to be illusionary. Many, especially the younger generation who opt out of any role in politics, seem to be the more intelligent in refusing to try over and over something they perceive as not working. This is compounded by the natural tendency of politicians to sell hope without substance, thereby promoting cynicism. Pundits and students of government generally agree that our federal government is dysfunctional, with a Congress in gridlock, an imperial presidency steeped in its own hubris, and a judiciary anointed with papal powers for life. Conventional wisdom informs us that our government under the Bush administration is the worst we have ever seen. Not so. We are captivated by the myth of the good old days. The good old days never existed. We have selective memory about our triumphal past and amnesia about the wrongs perpetrated in each decade since our nation's founding. We are a great people because we are stewards of a land blessed blessed by a geographic location, abundant natural resources, and the amalgam of racially and culturally diverse immigrant populations. We need to reject the arrogance of national triumphalism and appreciate our blessings, not as recognition for our worth, but as a gift for all who came before us. We need an ethic that marries the strength of our individualism with our common responsibilities in the constituent assembly of the people nationally and globally. If we are to grow and improve ourselves individually and collectively, we need to complete the structure um, structural design of human governance so ably advanced by our founders. They were informed by the experiences of earlier societies, particularly Solon's concept of law in Greece and the Swiss concept of federalism. The century of Swiss governance, beginning in 1848, at the close of the three-year religious civil war, raised the possibilities of effective government to instructive heights. That poor, multi-ethnic, multilingual, hard-scrabble country, steeped in religious conflict, without natural resources, decided to adopt a Constitution modeled on our own, except that the people were brought into the operation of government as lawmakers in partnership with their elected officials. Even the acclaimed Alexis de Tocqueville had serious doubts that this Swiss experiment in the union of direct and representative democracy would work. However, the result is without precedent in human history. Switzerland, living in peace has evolved into the most successfully governed and on a per capita basis one of the wealthiest nations in the world. Its only distinguishing feature from all other democracies in the world is the involvement of its people as lawmakers within the operations of government. The United States of America is not, in fact, a democracy, nor are the other democracies of the world. They are all representative governments. In a democracy, the people are the government. In our democracies, we elect representatives to run the government for us. Those we elect do not, for the most part, run the country first and foremost in the interest of the people, as human nature dictates. They run it for their own self-interest first. We are led to believe by those who control the polity that we have no choice but to give our sovereign power to the politicians on election day. That need not be the case. The central power of government is lawmaking, not voting. Those who make the laws determine how, when, and if citizens can vote. Florida in 2000 and Ohio in 2004 are recent examples. Citizens can gain control of their government by becoming lawmakers, empowered to make laws for their own benefit. The people are more constructive, I'm sorry, more conservative than their elected officials, regardless of political party, particularly when it comes to limiting the continuous growth of government. <clears throat> this generation of Americans must complete the work of the founders by bringing American citizens into the operations of government as lawmakers in a governing partnership with our elected officials. Are the people qualified to make laws governing their lives? They're qualified enough at the state and local levels of government. They're qualified enough on election day to give their power away to political political candidates who manipulate the electoral process with money from special interests to get elected. In fact, it's easier for citizens to decide on policy issues themselves rather than try to guess what representatives will do after they get into office. It's even more difficult when you realize that politicians say whatever it takes to get elected. Do Americans want to become lawmakers? Polls show that people overwhelmingly want to be empowered. The only possible empowerment tool is lawmaking. For the last 225 years, citizens have been sold on the legislative monopoly of representative government or powers wielded by their elites. How can Americans become lawmakers? The Congress is not likely to dilute its powers by empowering the people. Therefore, the people themselves must enact a federal ballot initiative called the National Initiative for Democracy, the proposed law that my colleagues and I have developed and refined over the past decade to empower citizens as lawmakers in every government jurisdiction in the United States, in a partnership with our elected officials. The enacting process goes entirely around the U.S. government and is legal under our Constitution. The ideological foundation of the national initiative rests on the belief that the constituent power of the people is sovereign. and the American people, like all peoples, can govern themselves as they see fit in the pursuit of their happiness and their general welfare. George Washington in 1787 said it best. People can decide with as much propriety on alterations and amendments to the Constitution, which shall be found as necessary as ourselves, for I do not conceive that we are more inspired, have more wisdom, or possess more virtue than those who will come after us. The National Initiative is a legislative package sponsored by the Democracy Foundation, www.nationalinitiative.us, a nonprofit IRS 501c3 corporation that includes an amendment to the Constitution and a federal statute. The Democracy Amendment, one, amends the Constitution asserting the legislative powers of the people, two, sanctions the national election conducted by the nonprofit organization, Philadelphia, two, giving Americans the opportunity to vote on the national initiative. Three, creates an electoral trust, vital to maintain citizen lawmaking independent from elected representatives and to administer legislative procedures on behalf of the people. And defines the role of its trustees. And four, outlaws the use of monies not from natural persons in initiative elections. And five, defines the electoral threshold that must be reached for the national issue to become the law of the land. The Democracy Act is a proposed federal statute that one, sets out deliberative legislative procedures copied from Congress and other legislative bodies like the Alaska legislature to be used for initiative, initiative lawmaking by citizens in every government jurisdiction of the United States, and two, defines the limited powers of the electoral trust that, administrators that administers the legislative procedures on behalf of the people. It is important to understand that the national initiative does not alter the existing structure or powers of the United States government. Rather, it adds an additional check, we the people, to our system of checks and balances while setting up a working partnership between the people and their elected representatives. How can American voters amend the Constitution and enact the national initiative if Congress will not act upon it or more than likely will oppose it? The people, using a federal ballot initiative, can go around all three branches of government to amend the Constitution. There are only two venues within the structure of our polity where constitutions, constitutional amendments, and laws can be enacted. The people of their elected representatives and government. Herein lies the problem. The framers in Article 7 of the Constitution wrote the creation article providing procedures for the conventions of states to ratify the Constitution, which is how our government was created. They also provided procedures for federal and state government representatives to amend the Constitution in Article 5, thereby perpetuating control of the government by a small minority of elites. However, the framers failed to provide procedures for we the people to ordain alterations to the Constitution, or make laws, even though they repeatedly said the people had the right to change their government as they saw fit. All power is originally in the people and should be exercised by them in person if it can be done with convenience or even with little difficulty. That was a statement made in 1789 by James Wilson, a Scottish scholar, a signer of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, and the prime mover in securing the rapid ratification of the Constitution in Pennsylvania, George Washington appointed him an initial associate justice of the Supreme Court. The conventional wisdom among many scholars holds that Article 5 is the only way to amend the Constitution. Article 5 is how the government amends the Constitution, not how the people would do it. If the people had to use Article 5 to amend the Constitution, they would need permission from two-thirds of the Congress and three-fourths of the state legislatures. This would mean that we, the people, the creators of our own government, Would have to get permission from the representatives we elected to amend the Constitution. This logic is ludicrous. The constituent power of the people, the source of all political power, cannot be subservient to the powers it creates. James Madison had it right when, in response to an inquiry during the Constitutional Convention, he said that the people had the power to just do it. The people were, in fact, the fountain of all power, and by resorting to them, all difficulties were got over. They could alter the Constitutions as they pleased. The people can just do it. Directly amend the Constitution via a federal ballot initiative that goes around the government to establish a legal legislative process, the National Initiative for Democracy, that empowers the people to thenceforward forward act as lawmakers on the policy issues affecting their lives independent of their elected legislators. The precedent and the basis for the people to use a federal ballot initiative to enact the national initiative and thereby provide people with legislative procedures to amend the Constitution and make laws is Article 7, of the Constitution, which permitted our forebears in the 1787 and 1788 to ratify the creation of our constitutional government. Today's communications technology permits us to use the precedent of Article 7 to ask all American citizens if they wish to be empowered as lawmakers by choosing to enact the national initiative, an electoral process that is fair, transparent, and reasonable. Philadelphia II, a non-profit IRS 501c4 corporation, is conducting just such an election on behalf of the American people to bring about, for the first time in our history, a national government by the people. Many stakeholders in the status quo perpetuate the myth that the people are not wise enough to enact laws on policies that affect their lives. Nevertheless, the people are expected to select the individuals who then make those decisions. The selection of representatives to make those decisions is considerably more difficult and made more so by the manipulations of campaigns and the people making those policy decisions directly. This myth that the people are not up to the legislative task of their own self-governance is totally discredited by the 100-year history of the people competently legislating by initiative at the state and local levels of government, and by the Swiss national experience. Can we, the people, amend the Constitution and make laws? Of course we can. We are the sovereigns. We need a process that is fair, transparent, and reasonable. The National Ballot Initiative to enact the National Initiative is more transparent than that of any representative government. The national election being conducted by Philadelphia II to enact the National Initiative under the precedent of Article 7 is fair and transparent. If Americans wish to be empowered as lawmakers and truly have a government by the people, we must vote at the website www.nationalinitiative.us. Support of the effort by tax-deductible contributions is welcome. The enactment of the National Initiative overcomes the legislative monopoly of representative government. If a majority of those who voted in the last presidential election election, vote for the National Initiative for Democracy, regardless of the views of those in government, it then becomes the law of the land. The legality of this process has been affirmed by constitutional scholars from a number of the nation's most prestigious universities. The National Initiative's electoral process began on September 17, 2002. allowing people to use the Internet to vote. The successful use of this ubiquitous technology now demand, or depends on supporters networking with their friends, relatives, <coughs> colleagues, and organizations and informing them that citizens can be empowered to vote on all the policy issues that affect their lives by voting to enact the National Initiative. With the enactment of the National Initiative, the American people will experience the responsibility of legislating and governing themselves directly, bringing them the benefits of greater c- civic maturity. Imagine what you, empowered as a lawmaker, might institute or change for the betterment of your community or country. The National Initiative for Democracy permits citizens access to the central power of government, lawmaking, completes the work of the constitutional framers by providing legislative procedures for the people to amend the Constitution and make laws, permits the people to empower themselves if they so choose, allows citizens to vote on the public offices that affect their lives, would have allowed the U.S. to exit Iraq in 2006. In fact, it would have stopped the invasion from ever happening. Establishes, for the first time in our history, a nation governed by the people. Induces greater civic maturity in people, a benefit that will inure to all the institutions of society. That's it for Chapter 2. I'm going to take another break here, and I'll be right back
2: after these messages. Libertarian Candidate for President, Christine Smith.
3: It's time for a people's America, an America of peace and individual liberty.
2: LibertarianforPresident.com
3: I am the only true peace candidate. My first act as president will be to immediately withdraw all U.S. troops from Iraq, regardless of the consequences. I will end American imperialism. I will end U.S. government meddling in the affairs and conflicts of foreign nations.
2: Libertarianforpresident.com.
3: I will restore all your rights because I believe in the literal interpretation of the Bill of Rights. Your natural rights and civil liberties are my priority. Your personal and economic freedom is my priority.
2: Learn more about Christine Smith and her campaign to restore the republic because it is time for a people's America. Visit libertarianforpresident.com.
3: I am Christine Smith, Libertarian Candidate for President, and I approve this message. It was paid for by Christine Smith for President.
4: Fairness, justice, and freedom are not just words, these are perspectives. This is
5: Jacob. And this is Neil. Tune in to B radio Monday through Friday, 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, revolutionbroadcasting.com.
4: Bringing you the best in news and commentary on the fight for freedom.
5: We don't blow up buildings to make our point, but we will blow your mind.
4: People should not be afraid of their governments.
0: Governments should be afraid of their people. Congress for voted to pass
6: the Military Commissions Act to reauthorize the USA Patriot Act, both which are the to freedoms we cherish. It is for this very reason we are losing our freedoms. I'm Brian Green, independent candidate for Congress, and I approve this message. In Congress, i fought fight to protect the Constitution and to ensure limited constitutional government. Visit Brian Green the Freedom Factor at www.briangreen.com. Still playing around with the old media? Which one do
4: you even know? Are CNN
8: and
4: Fox
7: any better alive than they are on TV?
4: Yeah, right. I could
7: have told you that. I'm afraid so. I can't compete with you physically, and you're no match for my brain. In this corner, the old media. It's a piece of crap that doesn't work. And in this corner, the world
8: champion, Revolution Broadcasting. Revolution Broadcasting. Don't forget to visit www.revolutionbroadcasting.com for the very best in news and commentary on the issues of the fight for freedom. Unfortunately, the free press is free. So if you like what you're hearing here at revolutionbroadcasting.com, don't forget to throw us a
6: little Are you ready to have your voice be heard? Do you want to be around thousands of liberty-minded individuals? What are you doing July 12, 2008? Ron Paul and the rest of the movement will be in Washington, D.C. to rally for peace, prosperity, and to restore the Constitution. Join us July 12, 2008 in Washington, D.C. RevolutionMarch.com wants to organize the largest peaceful march and rally in history. And Dr. Paul is our keynote speaker. For all the updated information, go to RevolutionMarch.com. Join us in making this the loudest voice of freedom in history. Bring the family and make it a great educational vacation, and join Dr. Paul and the rest of the freedom movement in our nation's capital.
0: Brothers and sisters, time to get together.
6: Senator Gravel's update to his classic biting commentary on today's society, citizen power, is a sobering assessment of today's woes. More troubling is the fact that little has changed since Gravel first put pen to paper 36 years ago. In fact, according to Gravel, in most cases the problems have only gotten worse. Gravel writes, most Americans today are frustrated and confused. They are told by everyone that they are the richest people in the world, and the world's freest nation. Yet they see poverty in the midst of plenty, and continued erosion of their civil liberties. People are tired of liberal promises and conservative game plans which offer the rhetoric of hope but in reality, merely protect and perpetuate the status quo.
9: Now
6: the people want to be in power. Support Senator Gravel in his efforts not only to clean up Washington but to give you the power to build a better nation. Get your copy of Citizen Power now at citizen-power.com US Tune in to the North Virginia place show Monday through Friday, three to five p.m. Eastern. Second personal liberty, seventeen seventy six. Visit our website at www.NorthVirginiaPatriots.com.
1: And we're back here on V-Radio. Once again, I still have this pesky cold, but I will be bringing you more uh, today of Citizen Power by Mike Gravel. Well, I guess now we might as well go ahead and turn to the first uh, first chapter. As silly as it is to read it in this order, but I do understand where he was coming from because it kind of drives it home the issue of direct democracy immediately, without you know basically beating around the bush. Okay, now it's the citizens' turn. There can be no democracy unless it is a dynamic dynamic democracy. When our people cease to participate to have a place in the sun, then all of us will wither in the darkness of decadence. (laughs) I'm going to have to edit this, but BS, Senator. It won't work. (laughs) Why not? Because you're talking about something that doesn't exist, man. That's why. There's no such thing as citizen power. Not for people like us. Black youth tilted his chair back against the wall and regarded me with open skepticism, challenging me to prove him wrong. The others nodded their agreement. It was a hot summer afternoon in mid-1970, and I was in the Harlem Storefront Street Academy talking with a group of social and educational dropouts, the ones polite society paternalistically refers to as the disadvantaged. I had scheduled the visit when I arrived in New York earlier in the day and learned I had some free time before my evening speaking engagement. The Street Academy program was getting some good reviews. I wanted to see one for myself, and I wanted to talk with the students. For months, I had sensed a happening taking place in America. Everywhere I traveled, I saw a growing public dissatisfaction, frustration, and anger. That was no silent majority I was witnessing. They were people articulating in both words and deeds, and that they wanted something more out of life than they were receiving. They were demanding more economic security, more benefits and safeguards more personal freedom, and more control over the decision-making process. The demands were not particularly new, but there was something significantly different about the manner in which they were being presented. Instead of complaining and demonstrating individually, citizens were joining together and forming powerful public interest constituencies, blacks, Latinos, peace groups, the young, the aged, women, homosexuals, environmentalists, welfare mothers, consumers, each with their own specific objectives and proposals, yet all sharing a common bond of seeking to change the status quo in America, to improve it, and to have some impact on society. Out of the seeds of despair, conflict, and alienation, I detected, and probably others also did, that the embryo of new citizen empowerment was taking shape, a program for change, struggling to achieve life. A new force was emerging upon the American scene, citizen power, all that was needed. I felt, was a public awareness of that power and the vehicle for assuming it. I did not understand then what the vehicle was. I thought it was just getting good people elected to government who would use the people's power to act in the public interest. But sitting in that Harlem Street Academy in the middle of neglected America, I could readily understand why the idea of citizen power is greeted with contempt when I raised the subject. What did that mean to these alienated young men and women? They had only to look out the window to see a street, their street, littered with debris, where crime and poverty were daily facts of life. They had no jobs, no money, nothing to call their own. What little they received from government was doled out as a privilege, not as a right. Maybe if I had talked about the possibility of getting some extra money to buy some clothes or get a car or rent a better apartment, they would have responded more enthusiastically. But citizen power, what was in it for them? "'Hell, man, there's no such thing as citizens around here, much less citizen power,' the boy seated next to me argued. "'There's just people. The only citizen I know is the dude dude in the White House, and I guess maybe the fat cats that gets all the money. "'They're the ones who call it their own way. The rest of us, we got no say. We just got to cut it our own way. "'Look around you,' I said. "'How do you think this academy got here? It wasn't the government. "'A bunch of citizens joined with the Urban League to set up this academy.' because so many of you were dropping out of the public school system. They couldn't get the government or the schools to come up with any solutions to the problem, so they raised the money, rented the buildings, hired the teachers, and started doing something about it on their own. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. For example, I understand the Street Academy program is in trouble because the private money sources are drying up and the government refuses to fill the breach by pumping insufficient funds needed to help keep it alive. That's a real shame. Even in today, in 2008... Dropout rates are a significant problem. 30% of our children do not graduate from high school. In many inner cities, it's considerably more. I guess you're right, the boy grudgingly admitted, but that's not it, man. I mean, I'm not talking about street academies. I'm talking about the big things, you know, like going to Vietnam or getting a good job or earning more money. We don't have any say in those kinds of things. That's what I wrote in 1971, but I could write it today about a storefront in South Chicago or Los Angeles. Sadly, the story is all too relevant 37 years later. In all that time, while many citizens have formed effective grassroots organizations to work on solving society's critical problems, the average American citizen has been precluded from the decision-making process, the disenfranchised even more so. The fact that there is so much citizen effort to make a difference, and yet virtually insurmountable problems still exist in our society, means that there is something drastically lacking within the system. Real power rest in the hands of those who control government by way of their investments and in politicians. These politicians make the laws for those in control. Wouldn't you rather be a part of the governing process instead of being under the thumb of those who control the government? Wouldn't you like to have enough control so that the government and corporate power respond to your needs? You might argue that that takes a lot of clout. Well, how do you think business, labor, farmers, or corporations are able to secure the laws that give them an edge? They do it by putting their money where their mouth is and by making sure they get the results they want on election day. People are tired of liberal promises and conservative game plans, which offer the rhetoric of hope, but in reality, merely protect and perpetuate the status quo. Conservatism in America has too often meant racism and support for wealthy against the poor. Liberalism, on the other hand, has relied too heavily on the power of the state and on faithless bureaucrats and government to solve problems. While failing to assure continued popular participation and control, the liberals have not attacked the increase and centralization of wealth and power. They have abetted it. They have sold out on Wall Street, or sold out to Wall Street. Sorry. That astounds and irritates so many people in, what, in that the liberals, both Democratic and Republican, have been in power since World War II, that they have not made good on their promises. Liberals have applied some band-aid emergency measures to the poor but their programs have been paid for by ordinary citizens, while their policies have first benefited the rich and the powerful. To achieve security at home, they built a mighty military-industrial complex that in turn built a global American empire to justify it. The conservatives advanced and perpetuated it in the extreme. Liberals also built a confusing bureaucratic structure of anti-poverty and welfare programs which robbed the middle class of their money and the poor of their incentive and, and integrity. These programs have been only only a hodgepodge of patchwork solutions applied sporadically to meet emergencies, as Katrina revealed. Indeed, these programs have not even been able to meet the emergencies. In the first place, the real money has gone for war preparation and war making. In the second place, the liberals have left the basic political and economic structure of the country untouched. Our corrupt income tax system continues to rest heavily on the middle class and even on the poor, while it practically exempts the rich and the near rich. Liberal programs fostered not only great industrial growth through the military industrial complex, the medical industrial complex, and the security industrial complex, but also their wars. The war on poverty, the war on drugs, and the war on terrorism. These programs, unfortunately, also fostered the growth of poverty, alienation, and urban blight. Most Americans today are frustrated and confused. They are told by everyone that they are the richest people in the world and the world's freest nation. Yet they see poverty in the midst of plenty and continued the erosion of their civil liberties. America is no longer number one in any of the important social and economic indices of the world. In fact, the only areas in which we are number one are weaponry, consumer spending, government, corporate and private debt, environmental pollution, energy consumption, the incarcerated men and women are a criminal justice system, and of course, delusion. With national security as practically the only primary concern of the state since World War II, Enormous portions of our wealth and human resources have been misappropriated to military programs, while desperate human needs lie neglected in every corner of our nation. Now the people want to be empowered. This kind of empowerment strongly supports the old liberal notions of increasing the public sector and public responsibility in all areas of life, including business and work. It also supports the traditional conservative notions of freedom, to be left alone and the necessity of strong protection of the individual against the state. People say this guy isn't a libertarian? Anyway, this kind of empowerment goes beyond the authentic forms of liberalism and conservatism and the tasks it sets for itself. First, it seeks to change the present tremendous concentration of wealth and power in America. Second, it carves out new areas of autonomous public interest and forms highly visible and active citizen constituencies capable of fracturing the existing power structure. People empowered will demand a balance of power between the citizens and their elected officials. People empowered will want the government to be an instrument of protection and action on their behalf, but, and this is a big difference, as their servant rather than as their master. The only possibility of government reform is through empowerment of the people. This will permit the people to address those forces in society that have power to block a government responsive to their social, environmental, and economic needs. Unfortunately, the people haven't come to realize that their empowerment must take the form of lawmaking, the central power of government. Anything less continues their president mediancy. However, this concept is out of the box for the average American citizen who is weaned on the concept that he controls government on election day. He hasn't reasoned that in the second or two that it takes for him to cast his vote, he gives his power away to politicians who tell them that he wants to he, he, he wants to hear to get his vote. I'm sorry. He gives away his power to politicians who tell him what he wants to hear when to get his vote. People will have to suffer a level of frustration and anger sufficient to reason their way out of the conundrum and reach for an out-of-the-box solution to their own empowerment. They must realize that they are the solution, not their leader's. Then they will be able to attack not only the forces that control our government, but also the ideology that, ideology that supports them. When we assail the military-industrial complex, for example, we assail the idea of a system which values building missiles for overkill more than education. When we criticize business or industry, we criticize the notion that any part of the American economy can be run for private profit alone without regard to the public's interests. The awesome, awesome creativity of people needs to be injected into the governance of the polity. The people will be able to assume the adult responsibility of citizenship necessary to preserve their own freedoms and solve society's problems. Such responsible participation furthers an open adversarial environment of ideas in keeping with the original design of American government, which generated a built-in arena of conflict through the devices of checks and balances, our separation of powers. People in power thereby become the fourth check of our troika of existing checks and balances. When I served as a United States Senator from Alaska, the environmentalist constituency served as adversary to the oil companies to ensure the construction of the Trans-Alaska Pipeline did not excessively damage the Alaskan ecology. A poorly constructed pipeline would not only have endangered the environment, it also would have raised the end cost of oil for the consumer. The nation's energy consumers needed Alaska's oil, but no one wanted a bad pipeline conservationists in Alaska used the 102 statement of the National Environmental Protection Act to block the construction of the oil pipeline by court injunction until the project could be proven environmentally safe. People Empowered not only will be able to set forth broad goals and general principles and make specific proposals for attaining their stated objectives, but they will also be able to enact those goals into laws. People Empowered will unleash creative new solutions to old problems. The next chapters discuss some of the major problems facing Americans today and the ways in which people empowered as lawmakers working in tandem with their elected legislators at every level of governance can more effectively address these problems. The major thrust of this book is to define how American citizens can become empowered as legislators through the enactment of the National Initiative, a federal ballot initiative which will for the first time in our history define our ability to govern ourselves with the government by the people. Well, that's the end of chapter one. I'm going to take another break here, and we'll be back with more of the book Citizen Power by Senator Mike Gravel here on V Radio, revolutionbroadcasting.com.
2: Libertarian candidate for president, Christine Smith.
3: It's time for a people's America, an America of peace and individual liberty.
2: Libertarianforpresident.com.
3: I am the only true peace candidate. My first act as president will be to immediately withdraw all U.S. troops from Iraq, regardless of the consequences. I will end American imperialism. I will end U.S. government meddling in the affairs and conflicts of foreign nations.
2: Libertarian for President,
3: I will restore all your rights, because I believe in the literal interpretation of the Bill of Rights. Your natural rights and civil liberties are my priority. Your personal and economic freedom is my priority.
2: Learn more about Christine Smith and her campaign to restore the republic because it is time for a people's America. Visit libertarianforpresident.com.
3: I am Christine Smith, libertarian candidate for president, and I approve this message. It was paid for by Christine Smith for president.
4: Fairness, justice, and freedom are not just words.
5: These are perspectives. This is Jacob. And this is Neil. Tune in to V-Radio, Monday through Friday, 1 p.m. to 3 p.m., Eastern Standard Time, revolutionbroadcasting.com.
4: Bringing you the best in news and commentary on the fight for freedom.
5: We don't blow up buildings to make our point, but we will blow your mind.
0: People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people.
6: Congress for Canada voted to pass the Military Commission's Act to reauthorize the USA Patriot Act, those which have so bridge the freedoms we cherish. It is for this very reason we are losing our freedoms. I'm Brian Green, a independent candidate for Congress, and I approve this message. In Congress, I fight to protect the Constitution and to ensure limited constitutional government. Visit Brian Green for Freedom Factory at www.briangreenua.com.
8: They're playing around with the old
4: media? It works in We don't even know. Are CNN and Fox any better online
7: than they are on TV? You're right. I could have told you that. i so. I can't compete with you physically, and you're no match for my brand. In this
8: corner, the old media. It's
7: a piece of crap that doesn't work.
8: And in this corner, the world champion revolution broadcaster. Don't forget to visit www.revolutionbroadcasting.com for the very best in news and commentary on the issues of the fight for freedom. Unfortunately, the free press is free. So if you like what you're hearing here at revolutionbroadcasting.com, don't forget to throw us a little
6: shit in. Are you ready to have your voice be heard? Do you want to be around thousands of liberty-minded individuals? What are you doing July 12, 2008? Ron Paul and the rest of the movement will be in Washington, D.C. to rally for peace, prosperity, and to restore the Constitution. Join us July 12, 2008 in Washington, D.C. RevolutionMarch.com wants to organize the largest peaceful march and rally in history. And Dr. Paul is our keynote speaker. For all the updated information, go to RevolutionMarch.com. Join us in making this the loudest voice of freedom in history. Bring the family and make it a great educational vacation. Join Dr. Paul and the rest of the freedom movement in our nation's capital.
0: Brothers and sisters, time
6: to get together. Senator Gravel's update to his classic biting commentary on today's society, Citizen Power, is a sobering assessment of today's woes. More troubling is the fact that little has changed since Gravel first put pen to paper 36 years ago. In fact, according to Gravel, in most cases the problems have only gotten worse. Gravel writes, most Americans today are frustrated and confused. They are told by everyone that they are the richest people in the world, and the world's freest nation. Yet they see poverty in the midst of plenty, and continued erosion of their civil liberties. People are tired of liberal promises and conservative game plans which offer the rhetoric of hope and in reality merely protect and perpetuate the status quo. Now the people want to be in power. Support Senator Gravel in his efforts not only to clean up Washington but to give you the power to build a better nation. Get your copy of Citizen Power now at citizen-power.com dot U.S. Tune in to the North Virginia Patriots show, Monday through Friday, 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern. Special personal liberty, 1776. Visit our website at www.NorthVirginiaPatriots.com.
1: And we're back here on B Radio, RevolutionBroadcasting.com. <clears throat> Today I'm reading Citizen Power um, to the people here, and I'm going to move on actually to a different chapter, <clears throat> one that I think that a uh, some of our listeners will find good, but this has to do with uh, what uh, basically explain what Senator Gravel has in mind when it comes to the war on drugs. Um, Let me turn to it real quick. (coughs)
9: Chapter
1: 7, The War on Drugs. The income of the drug barons is greater than the American defense budget. (coughs) With this financial power, they can suborn the institutions of the state. And if the state resists, they can purchase the firepower to outgun it. Judge Gomez-Hartado, Colombian High Court, 1993. For 12 grueling years, New Jersey State Police Lieutenant Jack Cole was an undercover agent on the front lines of the drug war. He's exactly the kind of cop you'd hope to find in a job like that. Rock-steady, fearless, and dependable as the sunrise. And he was successful, one of the best in the department. But nearing retirement in 2003, he looked back over the thousands of hours of danger and deception and decided that maybe he had not really accomplished anything. In fact, he might have made things worse. Here was an honest cop who had lost faith in his mission, so he changed missions. Now, Lieutenant Cole is trying to end the drug war. Three years ago, he and several of his fellow officers founded LEAP Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, and already some 500 other law enforcement officers, judges, and prosecutors have joined them. Drug prohibition, like alcohol prohibition, actually got started back in the 1920s, most of us think of President Nixon as the one who started the war on drugs. Nixon took the Bureau of Narcotics, a tiny federal agency with a few hundred employees, and turned it into the DEA, a vast international police force with more power than the FBI and the CIA combined. And it was Nixon who got Congress to open the public coffers to local law enforcement. All of a sudden, federal money began raining down on police departments all over the country, and Jack Cole was there when it happened. We had seven man, we had a seven-man narcotics unit, he says. It always seemed perfectly adequate for the job we had to do. Then overnight we went from a 7-man unit to a 76-man narcotics bureau. So now they had to justify this additional funding and that people called and the, I'm sorry, the, and that called for a dramatic increase in drug busts. They took undercover people like myself says Cole, and they target us targeted us against small friendship groups, groups of young people in college. And as soon as we got in there and became their friends, come Friday night somebody'd say, "Hey, school's out. We're off work. Anyone want to get high? And of course, if nobody said that, it was our job to say it. For a young officer on the way up, it was a great game and he was good at it. If somebody simply passed a marijuana cigarette to me, they became a drug dealer. That one marijuana cigarette would send that person to jail for seven years. Today, when he talks about that success, his voice is almost a whisper. Over a 1,000 young people went to jail as a direct result of what I did as one undercover agent, something I'm certainly not proud of today. Lieutenant Cole came to understand what a lot of us already suspected. The drug war was fatally flawed from the get-go. In fact, when we ended alcohol prohibition in 1933, we should have ended drug prohibition for all the same reasons, to stop the skyrocketing murder rates, the corruption at all levels, and a criminal underworld growing by leaps and bounds. All the while, the booze and drugs continue to flow unabated. The problem was, and is, not much of a constituency for treating drug addicts as human beings. The numbers clearly show that there never were, and are not now, enough narcotics users in this country to raise concern. When the first drug laws were passed in 1914, we had maybe 300,000 addicts in the whole U.S., less than half of 1% of the population. Today, after spending a trillion dollars and filling our vast and growing prison complex to the max, we have driven the rate of addiction up, not down, to nearly 2%. That's a 500% increase. But we're still talking about a very small slice of the population. But for some reason, we have focused our most threatening legal artillery on this group instead of giving them treatment, proven to be many times cheaper and many times more effective than incarceration. We'd rather send them off to prison where they can often get all the drugs they want. If you include all the costs, interdiction, including use of the military, police, <clears throat> courts, and prisons, we're spending about $70 billion a year on this insane enterprise. And as Lieutenant Cole says, we're making the problem worse day by day. And this is not only here in the U.S. Our war on drugs has also been a war on the countries that grow poppies and marijuana, which have become the havens for crime and corruption. The whole point of prohibition is to make some prohibitive substances prohibitively expensive. Unfortunately, it becomes extremely attractive to organized crime. Prohibition didn't work with alcohol, and it's not working with drugs. Today, both heroin and cocaine are cheaper, purer, and more available than ever before. Even worse, we've created a whole new generation of Al Capones with enough cash, influence, and firepower to threaten the country's foundations. So what do we do? We get the profit out of the illegal drug market. In 1933, we did not end alcohol prohibition because we suddenly decided alcohol wasn't dangerous. It's plenty dangerous. We ended prohibition because the crime and violence was out of control and we were getting nowhere. That sounds like a pretty fair description of where we are in the drug war. Immediately after prohibition was repealed, the U.S. murder rate began to drop precipitously, and over the next decade, it was down by a half, a stunning success. Of course, we still had an alcohol problem, but now we could try to get the victims into AA instead of having shootouts with their suppliers. Alcohol distribution today, tightly regulated and heavily taxed, clearly does a better job of keeping booze away from the kids than when the mob was running the show. You never hear about whiskey pushers hanging around the schoolyard. There's no money in it, and that's the key to the whole drug problem. Get the money out of the equation. The best way to keep hard drugs like heroin and cocaine away from kids is to make the market financially unrewarding to criminals. Organized crime can't make a living on teenagers, amateurs, and tourists. They need the daily hardcore addicts, the one or two people out of a hundred, who have to have the stuff right now. If we could take this small segment of the population out of the market, there would be no market. For 90 years, we have tried to get these folks to give up their drug habits by using threats and intimidation. We've had a notorious lack of success. maybe we ought to consider another approach the Swiss for example stepped outside the prohibition box and came up with a completely original plan for dealing with chronic heroin addicts they found 1,000 incorrigibles people who had been through rehab more than once and just gave them the drugs the results were astonishing once the subjects were stabilized on a dependable dose of heroin they didn't nod out they went out and got jobs half the unemployed found work Crime dropped by 60%. The homeless found housing, and general health improved all around. And there was another amazing footnote in the, to this experiment. 83 of these hardcore users decided on their own to give up drugs. It seems that when uncertainty, fear, and desperation are replaced by dependable government drug supplies, people are able to think more clearly and can sometimes decide to straighten out their own lives. This voluntary abstinence ratio, 8.3%, is a better cure rate than we get from most, most of our forced treatment programs. There are experiments like this going on all around the world as more and more countries turn away from the draconian drug prohibition the U.S. has championed for the last century. When the Dutch decriminalized the sale of marijuana in 1978, there were cries of outrage and alarm from Washington. Today, teenage marijuana users in Holland I'm sorry, teenage marijuana use in Holland is half that of the U.S. As one Dutch official put it, we have succeeded in making pot boring. Where do we go from here? The first thing we have to do is change the official classification of of marijuana so sick people, at least, can have immediate access to it. Right now, the federal government still claims that marijuana has no medical value. That position is absurd, and it flies in the face of overwhelming scientific evidence. The value of marijuana as medicine is now solidly established in the medical literature here and abroad. The latest research indicates that THC in marijuana shrinks cancer tumors. Let me say that again. The latest research indicates that that the THC in marijuana shrinks cancer tumors. Washington may be asleep at the switch, but the American people have already made up their minds on this issue. In the latest national poll... Eighty percent of the voters support access to marijuana with a doctor's recommendation. Twelve states have already adopted legislation to make this happen. Marijuana has been a political football since the 1960s, and it's time we stop playing this silly and destructive game. We should assemble the leading medical and scientific experts and have them conduct an exhaustive study of every aspect of the marijuana problem, and then we, wait a minute, we already did that. In 1972, Richard Nixon called for exactly that kind of study. He established the National Commission on Marijuana and Drug Abuse and the so called Schaefer Report is regarded as the most thorough examination of the cannabis plant in history. It was endorsed by the AMA, the ABA, the American Association for Public Health, the NEA, and the National Council of Churches. Their rec- recommendations legalize marijuana. Though this conclusion was the product of two years of research by some of the best individuals, I'm sorry, best minds available, it did not fit with the president's political agenda. And the report was deep sixed We should resurrect it. As for the hard drugs, that's a much harder problem. But it should be clear by now that police, no matter how dedicated, are not going to be able to fix it. Law enforcement is much too blunt an instrument. If you're, if you're trying to run a screw, turn a screw, you only make things worse with a hammer. Before 1914, there were no drug criminals, on drug crimes, in, uh, there were no drug criminals or drug crimes in the United States. If you were addicted to heroin in those days, you went to the doctor who wrote a prescription and you took it to the drugstore. As astounding as it sounds to us, most of these addicts lived otherwise productive lives. The drug simply allowed them to function as long as the dose was correct. The side effects were minimal. The vast majority of narcotics addicts at the time were paying their taxes and holding down jobs. Like diabetics, they had a medical problem that they worked out with their doctors. It will be tough to turn this juggernaut around. There are tens of thousands of politicians, bureaucrats, police officers, prison guards, and attorneys who receive most or all of their paycheck from this failed campaign. Even though they know the ship is dead in the water, they're not about to jump overboard. Drug usage in a public health pro- is a public health problem, not a criminal problem. It's the war on drugs, the war against the criminal element that ravages our inner cities and compounds the social damage of an errant social policy. As in 1933, once we've got the money and the guns off the table, we can concentrate on our addiction problem. It won't be easy, but at least we won't have to pour our money down a rat hole by arresting a million otherwise innocent people every year. But for all the failures, we have had one outstanding success in the war on drugs, a stunning victory that calls for our attention because it clearly shows a way out. Over the last 15 years, adult use of tobacco in the U.S. has dropped by 50%, The secret weapon? Education. We never fired a shot. We need to throw a lifeline to those of us addicted to drugs. We are all addicts to some degree, such as the advance of pharmacology. However, advanced drug addiction is a public health, not a criminal problem. There is a tremendous amount of human and technological talent tied up in the DEA and other agencies involved in the drug war. Imagine taking these powerful assets, complete with a global intelligence network, and focusing it on tracking terrorists. It is difficult to appreciate the damage we do to other nations and their their people when we focus our foreign aid on military and police equipment to permit autocratic regimes to better maintain themselves in power. We would be well advised to revisit some of our agricultural tariff policies as an effective way to wean foreign framers from a dependency on narcotics cultivation. The drug war treats drug drug, drug addiction as a criminal problem rather than a public health problem, ravages our inner cities and destroys family cohesion, militarizes our foreign policy, establishes democratic regimes and strengthens autocratic regimes, produces a prison system that incarcerates more people than any other country. Fails to accept the Presidential Schaefer Commission recommendations to decriminalize drugs and treat addiction as a public health problem. Is a de facto race and economic war? Well, that's the conclusion of Chapter 7. I'm going to take another break, and then we'll move on to Chapter 8, Crime and Punishment.
2: Libertarian candidate for president, Christine Smith.
3: It's time for a people's America, Mm -hmm. an America of peace and individual liberty.
2: Libertarianforpresident.com
3: I am the only true peace candidate. My first act as president will be to immediately withdraw all U.S. troops from Iraq, regardless of the consequences. I will end American imperialism. I will end U.S. government meddling in the affairs and conflicts of foreign nations.
2: Libertarianforpresident.com
3: I will restore all your rights because I believe in the literal interpretation of the Bill of Rights. Your natural rights and civil liberties are my priority. Your personal and economic freedom is my priority.
2: Learn more about Christine Smith and her campaign to restore the republic because it is time for a people's America. Visit libertarianforpresident.com.
3: I am Christine Smith, libertarian candidate for president, and I approve this message. It was paid for by Christine Smith for president.
4: Fairness, justice, and freedom are not just words.
5: These are perspectives. This is Jacob. And this is Neil. Tune in to V-Radio, Monday through Friday, 1 p.m. to 3 p.m., Eastern Standard Time, revolutionbroadcasting.com.
4: Bringing you the best in news and commentary on the fight for freedom.
5: We don't blow up buildings to make our point, but we will blow your mind.
0: People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people.
6: Congress for Canada voted to pass the military commissions act to reauthorize the USA Patriot Act, both which have abridged the freedoms we cherish. It is for this very reason we are losing our freedoms. I'm Brian Green, independent candidate for Congress, and I approve this message. In Congress, i fight to protect the Constitution and to ensure limited constitutional government. Visit Brian Green, the Freedom Factor, at www.briangreen08.com. Still playing around with the old media? The works for you
0: know.
6: Are CNN and
4: Fox any
7: better online than they are on TV? You're right. I could have told you that so I can't compete with you physically and you're no match for my brain. In this corner,
8: the old media. It's
7: a piece of crap that doesn't work.
8: And in this corner, the World Champion Revolution Broadcasting Don't forget to visit www.revolutionbroadcasting.com for the very best in news and commentary on the issues of the fight of freedom. Unfortunately, the free press is free. So if you like what you're hearing in here at RevolutionBroadcasting.com, don't forget to
6: throw us a bullshit in Are you ready to have your voice be heard? Do you want to be around thousands of liberty-minded individuals? What are you doing July 12, 2008? Ron Paul and the rest of the movement will be in Washington, D.C. to rally for peace, prosperity, and to restore the Constitution. Join us July 12, 2008 in Washington, D.C. RevolutionMarch.com wants to organize the largest peaceful march and rally in history. And Dr. Paul is our keynote speaker. For all the updated information, go to RevolutionMarch.com. Join us in making this the loudest voice of freedom in history. Bring the family and make it a great educational vacation and join Dr. Paul and the rest of the freedom movement in our nation's capital.
0: Brothers and sisters, time to get together.
6: Senator Gravel's update to his classic biting commentary on today's society, citizen power, is a sobering assessment of today's woes. More troubling is the fact that little has changed since Gravel first put pen to paper 36 years ago. In fact, according to Gravel, in most cases the problems have only gotten worse. Gravel writes, most Americans today are frustrated and confused. They are told by everyone that they are the richest people in the world and the world's freest nation. Yet they see poverty in the midst of plenty and continued erosion of their civil liberties. People are tired of liberal promises and conservative game plans which offer the rhetoric of hope but in reality merely protect and perpetuate the status quo. Now the people want to be in power. Support Senator Gravel in his efforts not only to clean up Washington but to give you the power to build a better nation. Get your copy of Citizen Power now at citizen powercom U.S. Tune in to the North Virginia Playfield Monday through Friday, 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern. Respecting personal liberty, since 1776. Visit our website at Radio.
1: And we're back here on V-Radio. <clears throat> Once again, today we're reading from Senator Gravel's book, Citizen Power. I've moved on to Chapter 8, Crime and Punishment. As long as we permit unfair laws to exist, deny speedy trials or equal justice to all, and operate prisons to punish rather than to rehabilitate, our society will be guilty of a far greater crime than any committed by those it prosecutes. Anonymous. As far back as 1760 B.C., the Code of Hammurabi, I'm sorry, I must be saying that wrong, Hammurabi, <laughs> provided the first organized set of laws to make people accountable for violations against others. The comprehensive laws govern virtually every aspect of human conduct, from contracts to property rights, from marriage to medical malpractice, and from crime to compensation. While the punishment for certain crimes, which we would deem misdemeanors today, was extreme, laws gave, citi- gave citizens a code of conduct by which they could measure their daily activities. Since then, nations and their governments have faced the choice of one of two fundamental risks. One is to seek to control the lives of their citizens so as to ensure order and security, the risk of a bloody and destructive revolution when the collective human spirit can no longer abide such repression. The other is to risk the broadest possible freedom for all citizens in the belief that the people in a democratic society will so flourish in such freedom that their national common sense will ultimately repel the periodic tides of demagoguery or anarchy which flow in and out of their lives. The founding fathers of the United States choose to take the risk that comes with freedom, and they embodied it in that remarkable document known as the Bill of Rights. Unfortunately, a repressive climate engendered by fear has enveloped this country since the Second World War, which has severely threatened the fundamental protections the Bill of Rights affords all Americans. Many factors have contributed to the current climate of repression. They began long before the Bush administration took office. Most factors are rather obvious our huge and rapidly growing and highly diverse population, our urban sprawl, our fast paced, high tech communications, our economic interdependence, and our gigantic government bureaucracy, our greedy corporate elites, our racial tensions, slavery's legacy. Biblically based homophobic fears, making scapegoats of immigrants to hide from national failings, changes in the definition of family, and the increasing disparity between the rich and the poor. Our lifestyle changes have accelerated at unprecedented speed as the world has shrunk through globalization and information technology explodes with the World Wide Web. Internet. Instantly, we are made aware in glaring detail of starvation in Sudan, tsunamis in Indonesia levy breaches in New Orleans, and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Rising awareness has also exposed corporate corruption, chronic hunger and illiteracy, torture in our nation's prisons, the plight of the poverty-stricken in our inner cities, and the inequalities of race, gender, and sexual orientation. We have confronted discrimination at every level of society, yet we remain a society in which injustice prevails and, sadly, continues to grow. We have witnessed worldwide protests against war, the death penalty, hunger, and inequality. Instead of responding positively to these cries for social change and justice, the entrenched powers have sought to control the ideas that threaten their own agendas of domination. If that meant violating long-standing rights, so be it. Most often, these violations have been cloaked in secrecy. As pressure for social, societal change, e.g., equal rights, increased, those seeking to halt the change sought more control. The agents of repression, rather than seek control over and changing the conditions, creating the pressures, address the comfortable, settled, generally contended, and traditional middle and upper class instilling fear in them of menacing stereotypes of crime, drugs, and, pet- and permissiveness. The repression of communications, the avenues through which people sharpen their awareness and publicize their new demands that upset the status quo, is the traditional course taken to circumcise or circumscribe freedom. If the history of our great nation or I'm sorry, in the history of our great nation, there has never been an administration that so deliberately sought to undermine and control the dissemination of information to the public, to restrict free expression of opinion and to criminalize dissent as the present one. The rights of speech, peaceable assembly, dissent, freedom of the press, due process, privacy, The practice of one's religion and the right to bear arms, all guaranteed by the Bill of Rights and the amendments of the United States Constitution, have never been closer to annihilation. In the midst of social turmoil, we have dumbed down America, left all children behind, outsourced vast amounts of work, privatized customary government tasks, misappropriated funds for the upkeep of our nation's infrastructure, and funneled billions of taxpayer dollars for war at the expense of the social needs of our people. When hope dies, its heirs are desperation and despair, said the great educator, Dr. James B. Conant. Today, that prophecy has come true. Hope has indeed died for vast numbers of Americans, and desperation has become embodied in the social dynamite we call street crime. As a backdrop of these developing conditions, America has slid into a criminal justice quagmire that in a matter of 35 years has given us the highest incarceration rate of any nation on earth. A poster announces that one in 133 Americans is incarcerated is is not a national statistic. It is a national tragedy. I would add a shameful tragedy. Today, the least infraction is punishable by fines, jail time, or worse, political and social protests, possession of marijuana, and even wearing a t-shirt that criticizes the president. Crime statistics are down, but incarceration rates continue to climb. To put that problem into perspective, the four presidents, Nixon, Reagan, and the first Bush, made a serious case for the war on drugs. Only 315,000 men and women were incarcerated in state and stayed in federal prisons. That number tripled by the time Clinton became president and has continued to climb. According to the Sentencing Project, criminologists Alfred Blumstein and Alan Beck concluded that changes in crime explain only 12% of the prison rise, while changes in sentencing policy account for 88% of the increase. Let's look at sentencing policy and how it has led us into this dismal state of affairs we now face in our criminal justice system. Political leadership, primarily Republican, has bequeathed the U.S. a misguided sentencing policy. In 1920, prohibition of alcohol, then America's most popular recreational drug, commenced with crackdowns across the country. Prohibition was an abysmal failure. It opened wide the doors to bootleg liquor, organized crime, and lucrative ventures for those who dared participate in the illegal trade of alcohol. Above all, it bred disrespect for the law. In 1933, alcohol prohibition laws were repealed largely due to public pressure and a courageous leader, Franklin Roosevelt. In the previous chapter, we tackled the war on drugs and its abject failure. You would think we would have learned from prohibition that criminalizing drug use does not work. The revised war on drugs, so dubbed by Richard Nixon in 1972, spawned a flood of great tough laws, or I'm sorry, of get tough laws at the local, state, and federal levels of government and launched a tidal wave of money making opportunities for those involved in, po- in policing, prosecuting, and punishing violators at every level in the both public and private sectors. The military, no, it's not the military industrial complex, this would be the prison industrial complex. As Milton Friedman, the late Nobel Prize winning economist, I'm sorry, economists said If you look at the drug war From a purely economic point of view The role of the government is to protect the drug cartel That's literally true In 1973, under the direction of Governor Nelson Rockefeller Whose name evokes moderate republicanism New York introduced mandatory Minimum sentences of 15 years To life imprisonment for the possession Of more than 4 ounces of a hard drug Along with many of Other governors, Michigan's Governor William G. Milliken answered the call to check the rising tide of drug trafficking in his state and signed the mandatory minimum law. He now denounces his decision. We were trying to catch the kingpins, but instead we got a lot of little guys, some of whom were addicts trying to supply their habit. We did not foresee the problems that these laws would create. The three strikes and you're out policy, first adopted in 1994 in California, became the first mandatory sentencing policy to gain widespread support and be adopted by most states. This policy mandates life imprisonment for a third criminal conviction for any offense. Carried to its extreme in the case of a young man arrested three times for stealing food and sentenced to life imprisonment, that case was overturned and in the process focused public attention on rethinking the problems with this particular get-tough policy. Other problems of considerable weight and cost have resulted from mandatory sentencing, not the least of which has been stripping our judges of their discretionary powers. Prior to the new sentencing laws, Judges used their powers to assess a given case and impose an appropriate sentence so that the punishment most often fit the crime. With mandatory minimums, however, judges could not use their discretion and instead handed down sentences far outweighing the crimes in most cases. Quick to get on the get-tough bandwagon were ambitious prosecutors and politicians whose careers flourished by crackdowns on crime and drug dealing. In fact, the prison population grew so quickly that overcrowding resulted, mandating the construction of new state and federal prisons and the addition of corrections officers and management staff to handle the growing prison population. Overcrowding our prisons has brought additional problems, increased violence, and a higher risk of spreading diseases. One of the most serious problems that resulted from the institution of the mandatory minimum laws has been the incarceration of nonviolent drug offenders, nonviolent offenders in general, sorry, More than half of today's prisoners are incarcerated on drug charges, despite evidence that treatment programs are more effective in preventing repeat offenses. The taxpayer dollars wasted on incarcerating nonviolent offenders are incalculable. This is a shameful waste of the public treasure. Our national sentencing policy has failed miserably. As Senior Circuit Judge Myron H. Bright of the 8th Circuit Court in 1993 so aptly said, unwise sentencing policies, which put men and women in prison for years, not only ruin lives, but also drain the American taxpayers. It is time to call a halt to the unnecessary and expensive cost of putting people in prison for a long time based on the mistaken notion that such an effort will win the war on drugs. The public needs to know that unnecessary, harsh, and unreasonable drug sentences serve to waste billions of dollars without doing much good for society. We have an unreasonable system. The negative culture of incarceration is our own creation. When people become acclimated to prison culture, they learn how to function better in that environment than they do in normal society. It would take a radical shift for them to change. Keeping the criminal justice system entrenched in that negative culture has been the work of three elements, economics, politics, and the media. The answer is not in spending more money on programs, programs, but in changing the culture of incarceration. That requires a paradigm shift. This is about not having forced idleness over extended periods of time in our prisons, one of the worst situations you can impose on a human being. We confine people to cages and treat them like they are incompetent, incapable, and unworthy, and we believe our job is to make their lives miserable, says Morgan Moss, director of the Center for Therapeutic Justice in Virginia. That's the culture of negative environment, which is the prison system we now have. We forget that people go to prison as punishment, not for punishment. The most dangerous criminals represent only about 10% of the prison population nationwide, yet we're treating the other 90% the way the violent 10% are treated. Such treatment of drug addicts and alcoholics perpetuates the revolving door of recidivism by improving their criminal skills while in prison to better criminally finance the cost of their addictions when released. Until they receive proper treatment to check their addictions, they are going to remain caught in those revolving doors." We must change negative prison culture into, positive, into a positive opportunity. We must turn this negative culture into a positive environment, and we can start simply by treating prisoners with dignity and respect as capable people. When you do so, remarkable things happen. They stop acting like caged animals. They no longer destroy property or endanger others. The suicide attempt rate plummets, and the violence across the board in prisons goes almost to zero. This works beyond a shadow of a doubt, attests Moss, who has practiced this method successfully in jails and believes it would be just as effective in prisons. When there is no forced idleness because inmates are busy in volunteer self-selected programs for 12 hours a day, the security staff has very little to do. When you treat prisoners as human beings deserving of dignity and respect, people change. The only ones that do not change are so damaged, so institutionalized, or so mentally ill or antisocial, they are incapable of changing. That is a different problem than what I am attempting to focus on in this chapter. Stop and think for a moment that more than 600,000 people are released annually from our prisons, and more than 12 million people pass through the nation's jails every year. They come back into society either angry for having been abused or treated unfairly while incarcerated, or prepared to merge into our communities ready, willing, and able to become productive citizens. Which one would you prefer to have as a, neighbor, a new neighbor? We train attack dogs through selective punishment. Why do politicians believe that they can get better results by punishing people? We need more innovation in the courts, building on innovation in the courts, building on success with drug, reentry, and other problem-solving courts with effective probation and parole supervision that lock up as a lock up people as a last resort and not with technical probation violations. While they are in prison, we need to make the environment conducive to learning and rehabilitating, helping inmates make the most of their time. When they are released, Where there are functional families, support should be made available so that the families can better receive them and and are educated in ways of keeping them on the track of productivity. To support the family's efforts, probation and parole must offer positive intervention. Often, however, there are no functional families. In those cases, mentoring needs to be encouraged by faith-based and other volunteer organizations. It is absolutely critical that basic needs such as housing, medical care, and work are available. A person who is denied basic needs is forced by society to operate in an extra-legal environment to survive. He's got that right. If this approach were taken across the country, within a decade, significant progress could be made in changing the culture of the American criminal justice system. Locking up people for $30,000 or more per year for lengthy sentences is extremely wasteful. Moreover, it is a human, social, and moral waste that can no longer be afforded nor tolerated. Other countries that do not spend such vast resources on creative negative human capital will knock our socks off competitively unless we make the decision to end this waste. Forty years ago, Carl Menninger, M.D., in his book, Crime and Punishment, or the Crime of Punishment, pointed to to the deep flaws in our correction systems. Instead of taking measures to correct the flaws identified by Menninger, state and national leaders responded to to democratic demagogic populist calls fueled by manufactured political claims to get tough on crime. They have created a monster that threatens not only the nation's competitiveness but our own personal security. We have concentrated a vast army of troubled people together with hardened criminals and potential terrorists. We are beginning to see the emerging threat of a terrorist gangs, taught in our prisons, paid for by taxpayers at a cost per annum equal to a Harvard education the greatest threat to our nation may lie within our own prisons. Our correction system must be transformed to produce people more able to pr- become productive citizens than when they enter the system. Nationally, over two-thirds of people who will get entangled in the criminal justice system reoffend and return to the system. The solution is indicated by the results. People who, while in prison, complete their higher education or participate in any number of programs designed to teach a work ethic and other values, that can be applied in the real world when the prisoner is released, have a 3% recidivism rate. (laughs) I guess they just mean, you know, they have a 3%
6: chance there. I don't even
1: know what that word is. That's interesting. (laughs) Sorry, folks. Clearly, making people more capable produces the desired results. Incarceration, with some exceptions, should present educational opportunities to every inmate to the maximum of their aspirations, If that aspiration includes a college education, then we should create that opportunity since we have already committed to pay this price by incarcerating that individual. Before all the libertarians out there panic at the idea of these people getting college, we should probably consider the fact that our choices are either to continue to leave them in prison for the rest of their lives and just pay for their meals so that they can sit around in their duffs or just improve them as people so that they're not a problem anymore. That statement's from me, not from him. It is possible to reduce our jail and prison population now at 747 per 100,000 to levels comparable to Canada, 129 per 100,000. Canada has similar, a similarly divisive po- 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 <clears throat> diverse population with comparable levels of influence and poverty. Since there are countries such as Finland that employ gentle justice and incarcerate far fewer people than Canada, we must look beyond our shores to those examples and elevate our long-term goals. The guiding philosophy for change must be that the purpose of the criminal justice system is to assure public safety through changing the behavior of people who commit criminal acts and by giving offenders the opportunity to become more capable of leading productive lives in the open community through education and treatment of addictive behavior. I'm going to have to pause here because I've only got two minutes left in my show. If you're listening on Blog Talk Radio, do me a favor and um, rate and comment on my show, and um, I look forward to hearing from you guys again. That's it for V-Radio today. If you stay tuned on (laughs) testing.com, you'll hear from North Virginia Patriots. Very good show. I'm going to leave you guys with a little bit of the Star Spangled Banner, although I have a feeling it's going to get cut off. And you take care and tune in tomorrow for more V-Radio and more Mike Gravel. Thanks for listening.
9: mm uh. Today. So, stay
6: with us. Let us work out this technical difficulty real quick. I promise we'll get it done and we'll be on live here and ready to go. So we to work through some stuff here. So, Bella is working as hard as he to get this done. Um, better him than me because he's a lot faster on the key the keyboard than I am. But, anyways, how was everybody's weekend? It was a great, beautiful weekend here in our Indian Hill studio here in the mountains of New Mexico. Had a uh, really good weather, went out, did some activities, uh, had a like, bonfire Saturday night, and drank a couple beers and sat around the fire, and just pretty much a relaxing weekend. It was really good weather. So, enjoyed it. Hope everybody else had a good weekend. Um, another new week, another new week of all kinds of stuff happening, both in the movement and in the world today, and it's, you often got around wonder, I mean, it's just amazing, um, some of the stuff that happens out there, which you hear and read, I mean, I keep following the news throughout the weekend and during the week, just all oh, the crazy stuff that goes on. I just can't believe it, but, uh, anyways, here we go, we're getting ready to follow this up.
0: Give us uno memento, por favor.
6: Still working on it. Sorry about the silence. We thought we had an intro down here. Um, somebody in the chat let me know if you could hear that music we played but I doubt it right here this is our reason why
0: we're we're getting our stuff together here we promise
6: (laughs) we literally had to switch to a whole new broadcast system for this so we're just reconfiguring everything from scratch actually we're doing pretty good considering Oh yeah on the fly yeah it's pretty amazing I think we about got it You're crazy. You're listening to the North Virginia Patriots Show. With your hosts, Ray and Brian. Finalcasted on Revolution Broadcasting, free media networks, and blog talk radio. Check out our website at northvirginiapatriots.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday through Friday, 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern. Welcome to the Monday edition of the North Virginia Patriots Show. We are here. I am Ray. And I am Brian. And we um, got a great show for you here today. Uh, we're pretty excited. We did a little promotion. Uh, you know, uh, something that's been bugging me lately, personally, and I know I know Brian has been there with me as well, is... Uh, Uh, is, is Mike Revelle. Mike Ravel and his attempt to hijack uh, the revolution, to uh, hijack the Libertarian Party, essentially with this uh, liberal socialist views. Um, and he's actually, you know, actually gaining some ground, and it, it really scares me, i got to admit. It just very much makes me wonder what the heck people are thinking. And so I'm just going to do my best to get the message out there. We did uh, interview Mike Ravel, uh on our show and uh, confirmed I mean, I went in with a complete open mind. The guy just really, really, really rubbed me the wrong way. said some really, really strange stuff on our show. And um, I came away just very much uh, disappointed in his point of view um, and, and everything. Um, so uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, and I'm going to read a letter and, uh, of, of some other people that have an interesting view of, of something that I think is kind of a, a good representation of what the revolution stands for. And um, it goes kind of directly against a lot of the things that Mike Ravel seems to stand for. And I just thought um, that, along with my talk about that today, that I could cover, actually read that letter. Um, So uh, we'll get to that. But basically what's going on here is Mike Ravel definitely has a uh, socialist uh, background. He definitely has a socialist slant to his beliefs. you know, he was even, I mean, i listened to him talking the other day even on another radio show on the Revolution Broadcasting Network, and, you know, he was even saying stuff like, you know, if you don't like to follow the rules of society, well, you need to move out to the mountains. Well, that's, I don't really agree with that theory uh, completely or much at all, and I just happen to do live in the mountains, specifically for that reason, and guess what? It doesn't make much difference because I still have um, all these issues that I have to deal with. Uh, It's not like I can just leave here and go into town for supplies and and live a life or to go out and actually be part of society when I feel like it. Um, There's all kinds of uh, of things that I have to do uh, in order to just leave the house, Uh, all kinds of rules that I'm I'm required to follow. And even living here, pretty much, you don't get much further out in the middle of nowhere than I am. I'm still subject to ridiculous county laws as well. And these things are both issues that are affecting my life. Right now, as we speak, Um, so I'm not happy with that. I'm not happy with people who say that if you don't like rules, well, then just don't be part of it. Well, I wish I could not be part of it because I gladly would not be part of it if I had that option. Fortunately, that's really not an option. So, I mean, he's doing a really good job here about getting everybody to talk about him and keeping his name out there. But there's, uh, you know, no doubt as far as I'm concerned that it's uh, almost hijacking the Libertarian Party here. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. Uh, his core principles are not in line with the Libertarian Party. I mean, the, the best example of that, I think, if you go back and look at the interview we did with him on the North Virginia Patriots show. Um, if you go to northvirginiapatriots.com, click on the podcast, you can find the interview that we did with him. We asked him um, about, you know, the core principles of libertarianism, that uh, the government is here to protect life, liberty, and property, um, and nothing more. This was in talking to him about his universal health care plan. And he said, "Well, right. That includes life, Correct. So, if that means that the government's supposed to provide universal health care, right. <laughs> at least that's his exactly. argument. Um, that's not. It's not libertarian. Yeah, that's it's definitely not. way, way, way far from libertarian, libertarianism that I know. Right. Um, and you know, maybe this week we'll do a complete show on what it means to be a libertarian. Right. Which, yeah, which is probably debatable. I mean, you know, sure. nobody, nobody out there is like the official libertarian. You know, maybe we can give it to Ayn Rand, Objectivism, or something. But you know, right. really, there's no there's no one person, no one authority that says. Um, no, but there is fundamental philosophies, and you can get down to to some of that. Um, you know, in a little more detail, you don't have to just say like liberty and property. We can talk about the little details in there and what all that means. Um, but you know, first of all, I'll give a shout out to everybody on our podcast that listens to our podcast. Yeah, welcome. Um, so, if you're just listening to our podcast only, uh, we have a uh, show that comes on Revolution Broadcasting right before us, New uh, Radio, uh, and he reads uh, Mike Revelle's book, Citizen Power. Yeah. And so I was listening to it, and Mike Revelle did certain points are good. You know, the Democrats have always been somewhat, somewhat good on social issues such as the war on drugs and things like right, that. Right. Right. A lot so, of those things.
0: With so use that as an good. example
6: and say, "Well, that's because I'm a libertarian," is not, but. You know, like the war on drugs. He started off good there talking about how we we should legalize the war on drugs and and so on and so on. But then he goes in and says, well, we should have government control over this, this, and that when it comes to legalizing. Right, right. He He started off great by saying let's end the war on drugs. And then he proceeded to tell us we need government to regulate drugs now. I mean, oops. Well, yeah, well, that's kind of against libertarian. Let's go <laughs> yeah. the libertarian on that. Let's end the war on drugs and replace it with nothing. <laughs> right, exactly. Now, if there's a transition plan involved, maybe I'm for that. But he never represents it as that. He says that this is what we should do. Yeah, the problem with the transition plan is government's great at making everything draw out and last for years and, oh, okay. and years. Yeah, you so get, this would be like a fifteen-year transition plan if the right. government does it. Oh yeah, you get some some new bureaucrats, some new jobs, and the last thing they want to do is lose them. Right. Exactly. Know, and they're gonna, you know, they, and the politicians are gonna want to, you yeah, know, increase right. government spending at every chance they get. Yeah. So rather than ending the war on drugs and getting rid of the DEA to cut that spending, you get rid of the war on drugs and you turn the DEA into a uh, a social outfit that makes sure everybody gets rehab and free drugs and right. stuff like that. Now, I'm all for rehab. I think rehab is very <laughs> important. We need to recognize that people are going to fall into uh, this trap of drugs all the time. Yeah. It we don't need government to do this. It's definitely not the public government. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, so. You know, absolutely, rehab is, is a very important element. I think if you're going to make drugs legal and available, then you're going to have to have rehab programs. If you don't, you're going to be in for some trouble. But um, Faith-based and community rehab is fine. I would, I need a so. on that. Yeah, I would agree with that 100%. I mean, now, you know, there's not a lot of people that are ready to jump into that tomorrow uh, on a volunteer basis because, of course, everybody doing it now in the rehab programs are getting paid to do it. You know they're harsh, not, in it they're a bureaucrat doing a job. This is what's scary. This is what is scary about government jobs. I, I know people who went to rehab, and uh, they tell me that it's just a better education for all the other drugs that they didn't think about that were out there. Oh yeah, exactly. I, I don't know a single person that went to rehab personally.
9: Uh-huh. They went
6: to rehab. And he's now out and's been like I've been clean for five years. <laughs> right. He's also back to drinking and doing drugs, anyway. Uh, well, I got to be honest. When I was sixteen, I got in trouble for drinking alcohol, uh, and so they made me go to uh, an alcohol rehab program, like you know, basically AA, but it was a little different. It was basically the same T O O like teenager. Age. Yeah, it was for kids. <laughs> there were a bunch of kids. There. Man, you know what? I came out of there with five. To-